Welcome to Jawbone with Dr. J and Dr. J. I'm John Monza, Professor of Practice and Strategy Chair at the Elite Joint Advanced Warfighting School, and I'm joined by Dr. John Michalshek, Chair of Theory and History. In today's podcast and those to follow, we will be discussing war, history, theory, strategy, and current national security concerns. Joining us today is Colonel Andy Forney, U.S. Army strategist, and Wing Commander Shane Rutherford, Royal Air Force. Both of these gentlemen will graduate from JAWS tomorrow. Thanks for joining us. John, let me turn it over to you for the first question. All right. Thank you, Dr. Manza. So before we start, I don't have a question yet. I think we should congratulate these two for not only graduating, but what awards did you all rack up? Shane, <laughs> uh, why don't you go first? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so uh, two awards, um, International uh, Planning Officer uh, was one, and then um, the uh, Distinguished Writing Award was the second one. And Distinguished Graduate, I'll leave that. Oh, and thank you. Yeah, that's the most important part. Distinguished Graduate as well, thank you. And non-Distinguished Graduate, non-distinguished Colonel Forney. <laughs> uh, I was lucky to be here, uh, and I received the Dean's Writing Award for my paper uh, that I completed for my research project. Yeah. All right, so... Before, we'll talk about your papers, maybe. Yeah. Well, what we're planning on doing since it's the first one, if we'll start with Andy. He's, yep. he's older, wiser, mm. more senior. Yeah. Uh, if, tell us about your year at JAWS. Uh, so I was surprised. It was my second choice on the list of schools I wanted to go to. Uh, when I, I, that was, really hurts. That, that, no, oh my God. So I didn't know. I didn't so know what was, what, tr- what was first then? I want to get a fellowship. It was, frankly, it's all about geography, right, is – there's a fellowship up uh, near Williamsburg where I was at. I don't want to use the name of it because they didn't. I wasn't selected for it. Um, but I, so I came here and I didn't ex- know exactly what I was going to get into. Um, I heard it was hard. That's all I kept hearing. And then I came, uh, I came to school and uh, I'm, I'm actually I'm really glad I came. I learned a lot. Uh, I would argue that you know when you go to professional military education, um, most people I think would say that you know about half the people are like in it to win it. And then you've got about a quarter of the people who are kind of hanging out, and they got a quarter of the people who are like, I just I really don't care. One of our 45 students we had here, uh, I'd say the majority, I mean, the problem was having people almost being too excited when we worked on projects. I think Shane and I were like in every class together. So um, I was one of the excellent, too excited ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had to pull them back a little bit. But and so it ended up being a great class with great faculty. Um, and I think from the from my perspective, for me, um, having the chance to stop and think. Um, I've frankly been running now almost for five years in different jobs, um, kind of doing a whole bunch of different things, but the opportunity to just kind of catch your breath and then as you, as you read some, there are things I read before, things I was reading again for the first time, to like literally feel the electrons in your brain start firing in a different way and to start thinking about different things. That was what was really important. Uh, and the last thing I'll say is the ability to think about a concerted deep dive into strategy development and, and particularly campaigning. Uh, I, thought that, I think that's really important. I think that's really one of the things that as you look at jobs, we go forward, you know, what, what we can build on and what, what we supply to the joint force is just a concerted multi-month um, deep dive into how we campaign at the uh, theater national level. Shane, what do you say as a 
UK officer attending this American. You, you have to do this in an American accent. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah my, my American accent's worse than your English one. Oh right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, for me, this was my first choice. Um, I was fortunate enough to, um, and that's why you're DG. <clears throat> that's what that is. I was, uh, I was for, fortunate enough to finish atop my uh, staff training list, so I was able to choose from any war college in the world. Um, and as you all know, I've been in the United States for a while. I was, uh, and I love, I love being in the U.S. So I was incredibly motivated to come and do this course for that, not for geographic reasons, but because of what's on the curriculum. So tell us, you know, is is this different than how this would have been done in the U.K.? Yeah. So the course, the yeah, the course is really different, as Andy just alluded to, with uh, you know six months dedicated to um, campaign planning and national security strategy. That isn't something that's uh, in the UK course. The UK course is massive. There's like 175 people, a huge international contingent. And um, I wanted to be, I wanted to experience that side of it on another course and, and try and really broaden. And as you know, that I've got a long-term plan with the United States. I thought this would be beneficial for me um, doing it this way. So, and, uh, and like Andy said, uh, it's been an absolute blast from start start to finish with having you distinguished gentlemen as as our professors obviously a, uh, but I, but I think one of the highlights two highlights for me I'd like to just um, draw on the first one is the guest speakers that particularly you were able to bring in Dr. Oh, Dr. Manzo the um, Rose uh, will stick with in my mind for, Rose got me yeah the uh, <clears throat> and uh, the responsibility for nuclear strategy for the United States of the nuclear program uh, fascinating woman to listen to and so inspiring. And then equally, uh, I'm going to embarrass him, but um, people like Andy, uh, there was a few others as well, um, that were incredibly generous, kind with their time, um, guiding us through. Like he said, sometimes I'm a little bit like puppyish, and I'll be like, let's get after it. And and Andy was uh, one of those that sort of didn't draw that back, but nudged it in the right direction for me so i'm incredibly appreciative of that as i've told them already privately but uh this forum too yeah a lot of camaraderie after uh, 10 11 months together huh yeah yeah i'd say there's only a few people i'll never talk to again from the class <laughs> no i mean i'll joke Could you name them? no no i mean no I, I think that um again i would argue and, and hopefully this is something that you continue to build on year after year but you know generally positive attitudes willing to chip in and, uh, you know, sometimes particularly folks uh, I've seen who've, come, who've recently come out of command um, uh, in any service will think that they know, they like, oh, I've been in command, I have the answers to all these things. And you guys have seen this before. Um, but but really coming in and being willing to learn, uh, I think that added to that. And I think that one of the things that maybe we, that, that you touched on, um, or others, but um, we only had 45 students, right? And so when you look at when I look at a lot of my compatriots, the War College, we're talking multiple hundreds of folks. You know, the ability to really um, have a very small group with dedicated faculty um, at a very small group level, I think, really helped out as well. Yeah. Um, helped with building that camaraderie, um, as well as the trip to the Pacific, I think, helped out as well. <laughs> but you were right. Like, it's incredibly intense. You know, we've got um, my, my family's a little bit younger than Andy's, but we've got similar you know, responsibilities and uh, children doing different stages in their lives, but equally important, and um, you know, so that that's that that part is demanding, and then equally the course there's such a high standard mm -hmm. that 
everybody, there's no weakness around you. It certainly doesn't feel that way to me. Um, so, you know, you've got to be on top of your game. Otherwise, you're going to stand out pretty quick. So, Andy, you mentioned this trip to the Pacific, you know, for the last... Uh, that some of us attended. 15 years, <laughs> the school has gone to Normandy and uh, from the direction of the, uh, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, we've been told to focus on the Pacific. Uh, so this year, Dr. Michael Sheck uh, led this, this uh, field research effort into the Pacific. John, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so before we do that, we probably should talk about real quick what JAWS is. Yeah. Mm. And we have two elite students with us, so correct me if I'm wrong, but JAWS is an 11th month War College, senior service, where the first half of the course, we'll say the fall semester, roughly July to December, they take two fields of study, theory and history, and strategy, under one Dr. John Mons over here. Uh, and then in, in addition, they have an elective, uh, which I believe, let me get to see if I can get this right, Wing Commander Rutherford, you were in Dr. Craig Smith's American Revolution. That's right. And... Andy Forney was in the most elite one of them all, World War II, under oh. some esteemed historian. Some people say that's the class the stars fell upon. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure yet. I guess we got to years that. to find it. To be no. decided. No, no, no. The streets are talking. That's yeah. What so the streets are talking. The, uh, then complete in their elective, they do their thesis or ISRP, uh, which Shane did his on the American Revolution. And Andy, uh, not on World War II, Korea. Um, so, but he was still allowed to pass. Uh, and then in the January after winter break, we do OP, operational planning, campaigning, uh, where they do lots and lots of planning, lots of reading of joint pubs. And then we attend after the Jim Thorpe sports day, sports weekend. Uh, those that survived that and didn't blow out an Achilles or their knee. Uh, we went to the Pacific for Operation Forager, where we studied and we went visited Hawaii into Paycom. Uh, then we, we took a short little flight to Guam. Then a short little flight to Saipan. And uh, we toured the beaches, went diving, and found some stuff out. So the Pacific trip, um, we met. It was the first time we've done it, not in Normandy. And overall, I think it went pretty well, despite John Manza not showing up. Mm. Well, some of us are involved in other uh, things that broaden the student experience. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I think, you know, I mean, the important thing, and, and, you know, both Shane and Andy brought this up, you know, there are several war colleges in the U.S., and JAWS is substantially different. First of all, much smaller, 45 students, uh, eight international students. Uh, some of the other war colleges have two, 300 students in them. Those other war colleges, uh, some people describe them as gentlemen's courses, and people play golf and uh, and we just play for his beer. Yes, and here the, it's much more focused on war fighting, as the name would. Yep. You would assume from the name Joint Advanced War Fighting School. Yeah, I think it's an important distinction to make, and it's not to take anything away from any other courses right i mean if you're going to if you're going to another senior service college you know that will have different you know different focuses across the board um i think that the if you're coming here you're going to learn how to be a you know operational theater level warfighter and this is really you've heard me say this before it's a school of campaigning right you, you come here you know the first half of the course we're in you know 
khakis and button-up suits, and then, you know, really it was January 3rd for us. Uniforms back on, and guess what? This is war fighting now. And I think that was really important, particularly as I talked about, because I've had, you know, people in all the other different war colleges or people going to war colleges, and I've told them what they're doing, and they're like, wow, what we did for, like, five, six months, they did for, like, two weeks, right? And so the value, I would argue, and clearly I'm biased, but the value I think we added to the joint force is that. And if, and you know, we... Uh, <laughs> John number one, John number two. John number one, I was saying the other day, uh, yeah, yeah, he's a little older. He is, um, much older. I was saying the other day, like, there's there's a level of cachet with a jaws grab when it goes out to the force, right? You know what you're going to get. You're going to know somebody who's been schooled in a rigorous course on operational and campaign planning and contingency planning. And uh, I would argue that the their positions in combatant commands in particular or their joint headquarters or wherever they may go, I should reflect that. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, particularly when you look at the graduates that are coming out of here, I mean, they're going to go right into the toughest jobs um, out in the force. Well, maybe there's a good chance you guys can uh, talk about your next uh, assignments and how you think this course might help you out. Shane, go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, I work in research and development um, uh, capability acquisition. So there's actually not a lot I can say. Um, but... Uh, this course will help me in terms of understanding the system, particularly uh, the JSPS phase of the o- of OP and understanding uh, what parts of the planning system people are looking to influence uh, the seams to make things happen. That was really interesting because um, I've worked alongside the United States, oh, U- US Air Force predominantly for a long time. And there is a cycle to their behavior patterns. And now I sort of make, I can make sense of that. I can understand where they're trying to influence. And equally, as a good partner, we will be able to bring that into our team about how we help communicate properly. You know, not only are our budgeting cycles misaligned, ours one's April to April, for example, um, that the whole system is misaligned from a UK to US perspective. So I actually found that element really really useful um and that that's something that's going to help me in my next job so uh i'm going to go uh i'll be working in the front office of the 18th airborne corps um more than likely as a cag director working a bunch of different special projects i think the bottom line that we've seen over the last year is with um the core um they have now um blown out or deployed for multiple different contingencies from the evacuation of kabul to uh, preparing for multiple other contingencies, to um, uh, assurance and deterrence missions in Europe, as well as recently to uh, facilitating the uh, Neo out of Khartoum in Sudan. And so they're starting to be you know, increasingly seeing that the joint staff is relying on, on the Corps to, to be able to perform on-call missions and, and, and to rapidly stand up a JTF. And so I think that the, the planning I've got here and then the ability to be able to speak to OSD and the joint staff and, and who to pick up and call the phone is really what I hope to bring to the team and, and, and to kind of smooth the ability to rapidly, you know, as where everything else is kind of going out the door to make sure we're going out with everything we need. And so uh, I, that's one of the things I want to be able to bring to the fight down there. You guys are throwing out a lot of uh, acronyms. Yeah, sorry. You should yeah. probably uh, resist that. You know, yeah. the All CAG, right. what is a CAG? What so is Commander's that? Action Group, I'm sorry. Yes. So they tend to work. They tend to work with the uh, command element inside the core as an operational headquarters, three-star headquarters. Um, you know, 
whatever said the boss says to do, I knock out. Uh, so it can be a lot of different things at any given time. Uh, I've done some work like this before, uh, particularly in Afghanistan, where I worked, you know, modernization portfolio all the way to making sure that different uh, 18 fire bases receive all their uh, workout equipment. So, you know, just a lot of different stuff. Um, and again, makes every day kind of exciting. You know, as a retired Marine, and you say the Corps, makes me want to come across this table and just start choking. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess I guess I, I should get called America's Corps. Sorry. I, I, I would like to see that as well. He didn't name it. American. <laughs> yeah. America's Corps, I'm not sure. Uh, whatever. Where, where, where is America's Corps located at now? So that Fort Liberty, rena- recently renamed from Fort Bragg. Uh, Liberty being one of the values that undergird the, uh, the foundation of the United States. And that's why he has a PhD in history. <laughs> what a uh, odd pursuit, I think, a PhD in history. Can anybody get a job with that? Yeah, <laughs> so if you uh, are interested in working at the Elite Jaws, we recommend you get a PhD, Shane. I'm tracking, thank you. Um, well, so you better start. And uh, Colonel Dr. Forney over here can give you some tips on that. <laughs> he, he can be. Uh, probably, probably, don't, probably don't do it while you're doing your day job. It's probably the best <laughs> recommendation I can make. And uh, – Shane, Andy, and I while went to the Society of Military History annual conference where they pre- uh, re- presented on their various papers. And uh, Andy, is the book proposal? What's the latest? Uh, just about done. Uh, you'll be seeing a draft of it. You and uh, Dr. Smith will be seeing a draft of it next week, hopefully, for comment. Um, I had a positive meeting at SMH, and so we'll get that done. And then uh, taking my dissertation, which has nothing to do with the Korean War, nothing to do with the Joint Force. Uh, but hopefully turning that into um, something that people actually want to read or just to put them to sleep, either one. Um, hopefully get that out there. And then what's, I get signed. You want to sign a copy now? Yeah. All right. So, it's Shane, uh, do you have a book in the works? No, I do uh, not. Maybe a children's book? <laughs> <laughs> something in crayon, yeah, yeah, absolutely. A graphic novel, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know you'd be the first to read it if it was. <laughs> whatever it is, whatever it is, is probably about economics. Yeah. Big E. Yeah, Big E. Little M. Yeah. In China. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about current events, Dr. Michael. No, well, I think we should. Yes. All right. Um, so we've been studying this whole uh, war in Ukraine since it, it started, and it's been a focus of the course and a great learning tool. Uh, Dr. Michael Sheck and I have last couple days in particular been talking about this uh, explosion at the dam and the flooding of the territory. My perspective was that uh, if the Russians were the ones who did this, then uh, this probably makes operational sense to them if you're standing in, in their shoes. And, and nations in the past have done similar things to uh, perhaps uh, blunt uh, an expected enemy offensive. And, and that's my perspective of what the, uh, the Russians did, taking you know, moral issues off the table, whether it was right or wrong. I think for uh, Putin, perhaps that was his uh, motivation to blunt this upcoming offensive. What do you guys say yeah i think um <clears throat> definite merit in that and historically world war ii that, that happened um to, to blunt offensives so I, I think there's definite argument for that um i think that it's an interesting tact i think you briefed us um a few weeks ago dr manza on on you know how you would frame your argument for strategy and in that discussion you talked about how war trends in this direction um, that you just tend to see these types of actions develop over time as war increasingly becomes like more violent um, in nature. So um, I don't think it's a surprise. 
Um, and I think that, as you've described from their perspective, from the Russian perspective, it makes it makes sense that wh- whether I agree with it as, a, as an action. It's completely irrelevant. But the um, but yeah, as, a, as an action, it, it makes sense. Well, um, you know, one thing I think we've tried to do, and, and you know, in my cohort, where both of you were victims, um, I think it's important, and maybe one thing that Americans are not so good at, is standing in the enemy's shoes. And, and so, you know... Uh, developing their mindset so that we're not surprised by the actions that they take. So as you said, Shane, I wasn't surprised by this action. You know, Putin's regime is uh, uh, in deep trouble, so they will, exactly. I think we should be prepared for them to do anything, no matter how distasteful we might, might I think if, if we don't prepare that way as well, then we stand ready to fail in some area or some pillar, right? So by not accounting for it. I'm sure it was accounted for. We've got pretty people, smart people, and they used to work in, in the offices that, that these these people are coming up with these responses for. So I'm, I'm sure it was thought of, but we need to really get better at it more broadly. So I think one of the things that, um, and it touches a little bit on what my research project was on, right, was I think when you look at where the Russians are at now, particularly in terms of the operational level of war, um, their their best units have been attrited, their best equipment has been attrited, and so if you when you look at now there and there's a recent uh, um, uh, Rusi paper that came out and I've heard a couple of podcasts we spoke on it about they're starting to see a level of tactical innovation that's taking place, but all of that is in the, is in the, is in the context of having lost experience and, and a lot of combat capabilities that there's a the, the Russians are um, moving to their commest, most common level of experience and capability, which is a conscript force. And so as they're able to execute some things, their ability to execute operational maneuver uh, has been weakened. And so the flip side of that is, in the face of potential defeat, will the Putin regime look at escalation be a vertical or, vertical or horizontal? Uh, and so I would argue that if, and again, I think, you know, with, with uh, an emphasis on if, if if here because we haven't heard about attribution yet, but if that this is a you know a Russian action to take down that dam, this is again another sign of a you know escalation on their part, um, which I think we have to be, I think we as Americans and we as West have to be prepared to see what does that escalation look like going forward. Yeah. So you know one thing John you and I have talked about is uh, yeah, I think there's a pattern here that again I don't find surprising, which is that at the beginning of virtually every war that Russia fights, they are terrible at the beginning of every war. Um, and then they learn lessons. Um, they do a trit or, or have uh, a purge of, of leadership, in this case, many of them killed on the battlefield. But then they organize themselves and, and, and come back with a, uh, a more powerful force. What do you say about that? Jack? It is the Russian way of war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you saw it in World War II, talking about the dams. The Russians, the Soviets then, blew it up uh, before while the Germans were advancing. Um, you know what you see the German or the Russian way of war is not real nuanced. So the dam, alleged, if it's them likely, uh, fits what they're doing. And the Russians, unlike the West, the Americans particularly, are always going to trade lives in space for time. And I think this was just kind of classic Russian operational art here. And we'll see though if it works out. Or is this, as some have argued, uh, other JAWS students, a strategic blunder for the Russians? The dam? Mm-hmm. 
So, I mean, you could argue the strategic blunder is invading Ukraine um, or invading Ukraine in, in such a way where you don't understand what the real center of gravity was. And I think that one of the, the takeaways I would argue is um, I think there's a – when I was in the Pentagon a year ago before I left here, the initial failure of the Russian offensive, there's a lot of backslapping and high-fivings um, in the E-ring um, with – Man, they really took it on the chin. But I think we have to be very careful as we look at it. Um, if if I were to describe to you a force that was transitioning from uh, generation of counterinsurgency to a fighting a near a near peer competitor while in the, while it was modernizing, while it was facing recruiting crises, while it was facing turnover at the highest level, you would. If I didn't tell you what country that was, I think a lot of folks would say, "Oh, it's clearly the United States or it's clearly the United Kingdom," right? Um, and so I think we have to be very careful um, on two sides of this is, number one, let's not, you know, let's not think about, hey, the Russians were stupid or the Russians did things wrong. The other side of it, be very practical when we start talking about it. I put air quotes around this, lessons learned. Because if, if the Russians had not made some very high-level strategic and operational blunders early in the war, they might have seized Kiev and destroyed the Ukrainian military. We'd be in a very different place. Yeah. Um, I think we have to have this long view of history with Russia, though. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, especially when you look at the other instruments of power that have been applied against them, the mm-hmm. economic instrument of power and the sanctions. You know, is there any country on the earth that is more resilient than Russia? You know, the people are used to suffering. Yeah. And the oligarchs probably have not really suffered at all. They've lost some some yachts or something like that. But but they're a hard nation to target. Um, it's a pretty closed society. So targeting, you know, using information operations against them is, uh, is difficult uh, also. Um, you know, so it, it's, I think if you look at the long view of history, uh, many people have counted the Russians down. Yeah. But they're rarely out. But I think I think going back to what you said at the start of this part of the conversation, it's about I think we need to get real much much better at understanding comprehensively both sides. So, for example, you know the Russians understand color revolutions as acts of war. Um, they understand uh, the EU um, the EU uh, intent to move Ukraine into its markets as an act of war, and I think it's. We need to get better at understanding. People talk about the expansion of NATO. Actually, those two things were far more important to Russia, arguably, than the expansion of NATO ever was. So I think it's. I think we need to get un, a better also at understanding what's going on within our institutions of international power and how that's going to influence the actions of our adversaries or or otherwise, and then cater for it and you know and and project forward. Yeah, so I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Michael Sheck, oh, yeah, so who wants to expand on one aspect of this as we, conversation. As we, maybe we wrap up, and I think we'll have a future episode on Ukraine, what's next. We'll see what the uh, the summer holds, um, and there will be another TH class on Ukraine, to be decided. Uh, but we, we might have a new tradition here on the uh, Jawbone podcast, is where every guest will have to answer and give us a very eloquent, <laughs> detailed definition of war. Yes. What is your definition of war? And for folks who are not familiar with the Joint Advanced Warfighting School, this is really one of the fundamental questions of this course that sounds simple. What is war? But as these students have learned, it is uh, 
a difficult thing to define. And this is also why Shane was a distinguished grad. And, and I was not? I know, maybe. <laughs> so who is going to go first? Uh, I jettisoned mine after a World Comps, so that was two weeks ago. <laughs> I can't even tell you what war is anymore. Um, I'm proud of you, Andy. I do the best I can. <laughs> According to another student, war is everything. So. Yeah, you shouldn't graduate tomorrow. Yeah, I know. probably won't work. So, you know, I'm trying to go through my head right now and think about the definition. So I, the war is a change in the relationship between two political entities um, in which they believe they can apply military, military power uh, to use violence to achieve, their, to achieve political objectives. And the idea that it creates a, um, a, a better peace to steal from little heart. And I see you shaking your head about I, – It's great synergy. I see you uh, shaking your head about political entities, but, um, you know, I think we have to, as we look at, you know, what we call non-state actors, but I think realistically probably more like sub-state actors, uh, they still have their own political objectives and how they want to move forward with these things. And so I think we just have, we are aware of that as we go forward. Um, so would you call this a Klaus Witsian definition Yeah, I think heavily so. Politics by other means? Yeah, heavily so. And as I think it, it as it should be. Um the, I mean, we give like, you know, the eagle flies at night, so we got to do X, Y, or Z. It's a Sun Tzu method. Um, but, um, or the, the tiger comes down out of the mountains, whatever. <laughs> I don't remember. Um, but I do think we, we have to do is we think about, um, we think about the definition of war, and I think, it, I think we're very comfortable with the beginning of war, and I don't think we're very comfortable with the end of war in terms of defining Absolutely, that. Yeah. And so I think our ability to say, and so, you know, when, when we talked about this a couple weeks ago, I said, you know, again, if war is the application of military pressure to achieve political, uh, military pressure to ple- to achieve political objectives, I think we have to look at the end of war being, you know, one side, you know, convincing the other, um, you know, preventing their will to resist or breaking their will, if you will, and then um, preventing um, outside interference, and then. Finally, there's some sort of institution in the country that can then enforce that new peace or that political entity as it exists. And I am straight stealing that from Michael Howard's Winter War is Decisive. Um, but I think we have to think about – and so, you know, the example I, I used, again, a couple of weeks ago is, you know, our current war against ISIS. And I say that we're ISIS-K or um, ISIS, whatever we want to call it. We're still at war with them, and I don't think that's something that we can um, – that we have – kind of rectified as a joint force, as a government, as a nation. Uh, but we are literally applying military power against them to, for some sort of objective, for no more attacks, I guess. And so I think we have to be very careful when we, we think about things like that because violence can become, can gain its own inertia. And if you don't, you know, kind of frame where that war is supposed to go and what those objectives are and how you attain them, then I think you're in a tough problem, which I think you can point to Afghanistan as a perfect example of that. Um, but again, as you heard me say before, my track record in wars is 0-1 and 1, so um, I probably still have a lot I can learn there. So, Shane, do you but agree with that definition of war? Um, I agree with elements of it. Mm. I think because um, he's English. Uh, so, uh, and the trouble with my definition of war is, like Colin Gray says, you know, if history doesn't support your thesis, then your thesis is wrong. Uh, my definition of war, history doesn't support it, right? Because um, I, my argument is that we're in a we're about to hit, I don't want to say a revolution, but we're about to hit a drastic uh, situational change in um, 
certain types of technologies which are going to change the way we think about war and the necessity for violence as a prerequisite to constitute war as an, as an action. I think that I, as I, uh, Dr. Manzo actually held my, um, my, uh, what do we call it again? Oral comprehensives. And, yeah. uh, and um, he will attest to the fact that I was still struggling through my understanding of it at the time. But I will caveat that, you know, I, the whole year I've spent thinking about this, I do believe that we are on the cusp of understanding things differently. I think our adversaries think very differently about what constitutes war, as we just talked about with the Russians, I think also with the PRC. And I think that um, the, um, the prerequisite of violence will no longer be required. And I, if you look at artificial intelligence or if we look at um, other forms of critical emerging technologies, we will, we will observe very quickly that violence is no longer necessary to achieve the types of political advantages that Andy talked about. I think Mark Milley's um, general, I should say, Chairman Milley's um, podcast and interview with um, Foreign Affairs recently, he alluded to some really interesting points about, about how the nature of war is becoming more of a concept of debate, even though he's firmly in the Auschwitz camp, I should say. But I think he's understanding that there is a distinct argument that does, it's not Mary Caldor's version. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something different. We're talking about um, technologies we don't fully understand. And um, the chat GPT era, the AI era that's being talked about in Congress now are perfect examples of what I'm talking about. So I think um, a lot of good points. That that means that basically is is so I know Andy Net well now. That's basically yeah, yeah. That means basically a lot of good means stuff. There. That's nonsense. I'm going to tell you why. You know, so I think you know you brought up the PRC right, and so there is a school of thought that um, by some of our particularly some of our our uh, colleagues that like we're at war with the PRC. The PRC is at war with us right now. Right. Actually, they're specifically not pursuing war because they don't want to. They don't, they, you know, for good or ill, they are, they believe that the joint force can still, um, could still win. And so they're specifically now going and using those other elements of, or instruments of national power to achieve those things. And so I think that's, I think that's an important thing to take. And as we, and I think as you talk about these other technologies that we can potentially use, I think what are their, what applications can we, what applications do we want them for? Uh, and I'm saying this, you know, not mainly directed at you, but like having seen it in a lot of different places, like, oh, we're just going to throw some cyber at this. Or we're going to throw some AI on this, right? So we have to understand that, that a lot of these technologies, and I don't want to make the, the metaphor too um, cumbersome, but it's like the internal combustion engine. It's the best way I've heard it described. You can take the internal combustion engine and put it in a bunch of different things, and it does different things, and then, like, and then it spurs innovation, Right. But you just don't take the internal combustion engine and plop it to the back of a wagon, and you're like, oh, we've got something now, right? So the ability now to how we integrate those new technologies, I think, is key. And now do they allow you to do more things, be it through, co like, covert operations, coercion, course of statecraft, those things, um, that allow you to still achieve those, those um, objectives? And I think that one of the reasons, and it could be that my definition is a little aspirational in this regard, is that I, th I think after a generation of war, um, we have 
I I believe after a generation of war in which I saw you know two conflicts in which the military began to take over everything, in terms of state building, it's it's time to rein that back some and understand what the military what the military's role in support as a supporting element is uh, across the uh, um, the, ins- the instruments of national power, and I just because if we don't, then I think we've got some there could be some potential issues down the road, but. Um, yeah, just just my thoughts, but yeah, yeah. mainly mainly think, to the area. you know I mean so amongst the students you know, um, there's there are students who are closer to the truth like Colonel Forney, <laughs> <laughs> and then there are students who are confused still even after eleven months. Like, I blame their like historian. Wing Commander Rutherford that war is everything. Uh, so when we talk about the PRC, we talk about I'm just summarizing. You know, <laughs> when we talk about the PRC, I think they are shaping the environment but not necessarily at war with us as many of our students. But, but you know, I mean, it's a great discussion yeah. because it, it's forced the students uh, and us, the faculty, to think deeply about um, the use of force and the use of the other instruments. And I power. think even have, continuing to have that discussion, even, even if it results in strengthening the traditional view, at least we're still going to have a better understanding. So that's why I don't tend to get too emotional about this discussion, yeah. as I know some people will. So when I, when I go back and look, um, at my notebooks um, from the course, every time I wrote down a theory of a definition of war, I folded the page down, right? I've got five or six different page times I've folded the page down because I've evolved it, evolved my thinking to, to political entities, to being like, hey, we need to talk about how wars end, we talk about what wars are. So I think that's what really JAWS should help provide the student who's here, right, is, you know, a fertile ground to play with those ideas, and as you read and go through kind of experiential learning, to think about, to think about okay, what is war? What is the application of military power? Is what's that translation function you see between strategy to operation, the tactics, and those sort of things? And so I think that's what that was one of my big takeaways from this course. John, would you like to wrap it up? No, I think uh, <clears throat> if you enjoyed these definitions, I think we'll do this weekly or not weekly, but every time we have a guest. Um, so yeah, in the future, we're planning to record at least once a month, uh, when we have guest speakers come in, we'll bring them in hard hitting historical events, current events. We'll talk. Um, so on that note, have a good one. Be elite. Read your closets. (laughs) (laughs) And your sunset.